Did you know Montel uses artificial intelligence and machine learning to forecast spot prices, inflow to reservoirs, wind and runoff river production? We can improve forecasts for your individual power plants anywhere in Europe. Contact us at ai.motelnews.com for more info. Hello listeners and welcome to the Montel Weekly Podcast. Bring you energy matters in an informal setting. Today's pod will look at decarbonisation, but in this episode we focus on parts of Europe that will struggle to clean up their energy systems. Our neighbours in the east plan to phase out coal and lignite, but what will they replace these fuels with? Are wind and solar the only options, or what are the alternatives? Have these countries admitted defeat against tightening climate targets dictated from Brussels, or can we expect further resistance, as after all, hundreds of thousands of jobs are under threat? Who will build or invest in green energy projects in the region? I'm Richard Sverson, and helping me to address and discuss these issues is Paolo Coi, CEO of Aquismatics, a consultancy. Welcome back, Paolo. Buongiorno. Buongiorno a te. Paolo, how are you doing? You're based in London these days. Yes, I'm spending more time in London than uh, traveling around. It's kind of a nice, refreshing change. And I uh, like everyone doing the best that I can in these difficult times. Exactly. Perfect. We're here to talk about the process of decarbonization in Eastern Europe primarily. Now, the discussions are underway in Brussels about, you know, 55 to 60% cuts in emissions by 2030. What do these very ambitious targets mean for Eastern Europe? Well, it's um, a wake-up call in cases in case this was, was needed, right? But uh, all of these countries that have some sort of uh, legacy fleet from years gone by, right, should have already been, uh, been awakened to the, the, the troubles coming. You know, the EU has had a very solid set of policies for decades now, so this should be no surprise at all for anyone. So I think those countries that left it a little bit late will find it probably a bit more costly to ultimately meet these targets. Absolutely. I mean, perhaps they were taken in by lower carbon prices for much of the emissions trading seat, phase two and phase three. Because when prices prices were, they didn't really take off until 2018, if my, my memory serves me correctly. Yes, your memory serves you correctly. The good old <laughs> days of carbon at five euros a ton, exactly. right? Uh, around 2016 and 2017, not to mention the years around 2012 or so, where actually it wasn't sure whether carbon as it was as a market would, would survive, right? And it took, again, more effort on the part of the policymakers to make sure that the carbon market stayed alive, that some of the problems were fixed, so that ultimately carbon prices could show some scarcity and go in the direction of disincentivizing pollution, because that's what that's what we're talking about here. Mm. If I may make a, a joke right at the beginning, you know, in the end, which I think falls well within this topic, combustion is so 20th century. Right? <laughs> we're no longer in a century where we want to move ahead by burning things to produce energy if we can avoid it, and we can. What's 21st century then, especially for Eastern Europe? If I'm a policymaker sitting in Warsaw, combustion's had its day, 
what replaces it? Well, you know, it's a bit difficult to be a policymaker in some of the countries because, like we were just saying, you know, there are some legacy impacts. It is not just an economic problem, but a social problem. I'm thinking about mining in Poland, for example, right? Having said that, you know, I, I forgot which detective or, or prosecutor always said, follow the money. Well, the smart money for some time now has been in renewables. So there's no excuse for not having picked that up, right? And for having made things or, you know, having written policies that would help the country or block of countries take advantage of the revolution in renewables. In Poland, we have seen quite a massive expansion in especially rooftop solar over the past years, past year or two, I'd say. Do you expect this to continue? Yes, I was reading, I was reading that Poland has quadrupled, right, in the last couple of years, the amount of um, solar power installations uh, connected to the grid. I think it went from 200 to 800 megawatts in, in 2019. And of course, you know, again, it will keep increasing. But let's not forget, even though these are very reasonable numbers, let's not forget that, you know, it's easy to double or quadruple if you're starting from very, very low numbers, right? So there is a, a basis effect here. But, you know, at, at the very least, you know, if I had to use another cliche, which I like using, of course, is better late than never, right? But sometimes leaving things late, as I was mentioning earlier, makes it more challenging and for sure more expensive. And uh, I think we have seen some interesting examples of this very recently with the largest utility in Poland coming out with a sort of a change of strategy, a massive change of strategy. We'll return to that, I think. But uh, if I were to, if we're in the realm of, of cliches here, is it too little, too late, what we're seeing here? Right. If I could only choose one between the two, I would say better late than never, right? Uh, but yes, in some cases, it does seem to be a little bit too little, too late. Again, you know, the counter side of the too little, too late is that to make it not so little, and to make it not tardy, you have to then work extra hard, spend extra money, and potentially you know, be burdened with this problem for longer than it would have been if you had instead acted upon the signals. And there were plenty and plenty of not just signals from the economy, but also on the commentary, whether it's the news, whether it's academia, whether it's experts pointing out the way. And going back, if I may add, if I had to pick one signal that companies would have, would have picked in is the fact that the well started to run dry in terms of financing dirty, so to speak, projects, right? The European Investment Bank was the first massive institution to say, we're no longer going to lend to projects that have to do with, for example, coal mining. If you go back, just adding these to other, other institutions, you know, in 2017, I think the World Bank, I think French Bank, uh, BNP Paribas and others, Credit Agricole, I think, uh, you know, started saying we're no longer lending to, again, quote, dirty, unquote, projects. So no Arctic drilling, no, you know, deep coal mining and so on and so forth. So once this trickle of companies that would normally lend made it difficult for companies that would borrow to start these projects. But that's a first sign. You know, if there are fewer people or fewer institutions lending, that means also that the cost of borrowing is going to go up. And so you need to start scratching your head and think, is it really worth it? It's obviously going to be more costly. And this is at a time when 
economies all over the world are struggling and are going to be focusing on rebuilding from the the devastation of the pandemic. But is it ironically is that do you think there's more finances available now through potentially the recovery fund and the green deal to push the decarbonisation agenda in Eastern Europe especially? Well, yes. I mean, I don't know if as a result of the corrective measures to pass this pandemic crisis, uh, for sure, even before the pandemic started, there was plenty of money available. And I, I wrote with my friends at AIF about this, plenty of money available to make good green forward-looking investments from lenders versus using that money, for example, to conduct upgrades to make sure that your polluting fleet would come up to regulations. So the way I've talked about this before is that companies that, for example, decided to spend millions of euros in upgrading their, some of their generating plants so that they could meet breath new air pollution regulations that came around in 2016, they were, of course, sort of running in place, right? They were spending money so just to come up to basically barely meet the regulations exposing themselves to a further tightening of regulations, which we know comes you know, periodically every four years in the case of breath. Even though we don't know what that will be, you know that it is going to move in one direction. To go back to what money is available after COVID, honestly, I would be surprised if institutions left this loophole open that said, oh, well, since we're all trying to you know, pass COVID, then yes, don't worry. You, yes, you can you know, invest in coal power plants. I would be surprised if they if they allowed that. It would be an about face. Absolutely, I, I share that uh, view. Obviously, the the need and the urgency is there, Paolo. But who is going to invest in these wind or solar projects in the region? Is it going to be external uh, companies or investors, or is it going to be more local uh, uh, national players? I think it's going to be a mix a mix of sources. There are clearly some lending institutions that are going to favor these, and they've made it clear with their policies. Then there are some large companies. The first one that comes to mind easily is Iberdrola, which have made a business actually of building, you know, on a large scale, for example, offshore wind farms, right? They, you know, investing billions. Here's the, the interesting thing. We're not talking about millions. We're talking about billions. So these are large investments. They would take large companies. Having said that, there is a very healthy system of developing projects in Europe And this has attracted attention of international players from a variety of of sources. For example, there are pension funds that like to have exposure to green and renewable markets that are trying to seek this exposure by helping uh, develop projects in Europe. This would, of course, add to the local development movement, which again, all we need is some guy or girl that has a mission that will go out, seek a plot of land, you know, get the authorizations, in other words, develop that to then sell it on to larger companies. And there's, you know, several models that this is done in, you know, you could, you could look at examples around the world from, from the United States to India, where, for example, the national government is helping sort of these large they're called, I think, ultra mega or super mega ultra power plants. Where basically, they are huge uh, swaths of, of solar projects where large players play in this market and smaller players play the role of aggregators. So there is a very you know, developed ecosystem, I think. And I wouldn't expect Europe to be any different. I mean, if anything, actually, you, Europe is one of the 
large blocks that is at the forefront of such investment. So that's a, that's a different kind of model to what's often talked about the, the PPAs, or is it a form of PPA, just a contract between a government and a, and a yeah, developer or a government? Uh, and an sorry to interrupt. Yeah, governments, obviously, everyone has a role, right? The government has a role. Uh, PPAs are absolutely important because no serious investor, unless they are extremely risk-loving, is going to invest in a project that's going to come about without some sort of contracting for the power that the um, project will produce, right? So PPAs are extremely important. Now, of course, no government will give you a PPA for the next 60 years, right? They will give you a PPA for shorter time periods. And uh, the shorter the time period is, the more important the quality of the project is. And in terms of getting the funding and getting the project going, the risk appetite of the funders. Paolo, you mentioned PGE and its plans for carbon neutrality by 2050. How realistic is this? Well, 2050 is a long is a long time away. We could say all sorts of things. I know that PG&E has had some it has had essentially a reversal of its strategy and so we're we're back into the world of better late than never, right? But how realistic is it? You know, I've read some comments from um, from NGOs where they're not really happy because it's a little bit like kicking the can not so much down the road but on the side of the road where they have this model where they're going to split their coal assets and then only have uh, sort of cleaner assets. And going back to this combustion problem, they will still, though, they intend to have natural gas as a, as a transition fuel for, for many years. So I don't know, you know, how realistic is it? You know, first of all, are they really getting rid of coal or, or are they just shifting their coal? So are they kind of not solving their coal and mining you know, lignite mining problem, number one. Number two, it's certainly a step forward that they are no longer going to get engaged in building coal projects. But is it so smart in the 21st century, you know, 20 years in, to continue to think about combusting a fuel to produce electricity? And again, of course, everybody on, on, on all sides, we all need to be realistic. They can't obviously go overnight from total fossil fuel to no fossil fuel Having said that, I get the sense that that they are a little bit, um, that they could be more aggressive, let's put it this way. So you don't buy natural gas as a bridging fuel between a, the combustible past and a non-combustible future? I have to be careful about this. Yes, of course, there is a role for natural gas as a bridge fuel. But the risk there is that you get comfortable with this bridge fuel and five years become 10 and 10 years become 20. And then where are the, you know, before you know it, you know, you're, you're coming across 2050 and then what? locking in those assets that burn in in a sense yeah of course because in the end i mean if we want to keep talking about pg&e because it's a really nice example what their strategy had been was to effectively double down on you know heavily polluting assets okay and then at that borrow more so that they could invest more in these assets and then when things have changed and so for example carbon became expensive even though they have uh, capacity payments, they just could not sustain their earnings with these, let's call it old-fashioned fuel, right? And so they've had to come and do a turnabout and say, essentially, they said, if we don't do this, we're going to go bankrupt. Okay, I'm paraphrasing here, but I don't think that that, that statement from the CEO, Dabrowski, was much different from this. So had they shifted their strategy sooner, right? They would not have gotten to this point. 
And there were plenty, as I said, plenty of comments from rating agencies to people that looked at the market and looked and analyzed it like, like myself, for example, saying, you know, not so far away, but back in 2018, be careful. This is not going to end well. You will be left with holding a lot of debt. It will be more difficult for you to borrow more money because of your, you know, sort of fossil, heavy fossil fuel makeup. And by the way, we are telling you, and we said so in 2018, the sooner you switch to green, to renewable, the better it is for you. But that's, Paolo, I mean, we have the benefit of hindsight here as well. Or... Well, no, I have the benefit of, sorry, of, of saying this two years ago, not hindsight. You know, I, well, yeah, I guess we saw what happened next and I was right. Okay, so, <laughs> yeah. yes. so it's more, it's more, I told you so rather than the benefit. For, the ones, for, for once, I can say I told you so, yes. <laughs> okay, I mean, Paolo, but do you, do you expect other companies, not just in Poland, but in the region to follow suit and make such announcements? I mean, it, it seems to be... You know, we had seen a lot of oil and gas majors come out and say they, they want to hit net zero by 2040 or 2050, and now PGE in, in Poland. So what about the others? Yes, I mean, the, the general trend is that it's worth accelerating the replacement of existing fossil generators with new renewable generation. Okay, that's the trend, if you want to call it that way, right? And then at what cost? And then what, what I've been arguing in this call, among other things, is that the sooner you do it, the better it is, right? There's a hurry versus wait type of decision. You should hurry, okay? You shouldn't wait, do not delay. And so again, we could go through a list of companies, but you know, suffice it to say that the companies that saw these happening and acted early, their shares, share prices have done much, much better. Examples that come to mind are Orsted, obviously, but Enel is another, another example, which was very, very successful in, in doing this, this transition. No transition, no company is perfect, right? There are effective constraints. You, you can't just, you don't have a magic wand and you can make all these old power stations go away. You still need to keep the lights on and so on and so forth. But that should be just a difficulty to surpass rather than an excuse for inaction. Absolutely. I mean, do you think, I think in Poland today, the government made some announcements about plans for nuclear and that they hope to come to decision by the end of next year. Do you think nuclear has a future in, in the region? Well, again, um, everything sort of looks good written down on a policy or on a sheet of paper. Then when you have to actually do the work, it is difficult. You know, we've seen a country like France struggling and France has had historically the industrial vision and the capability of doing amazing things for many years with nuclear. But they're struggling. So nuclear is very large. The UK is another example, right? You know, in a way connected to France, given the EDF expertise. The Finnish reactor, again, you know, over time and over budget by a lot. So I am not sure what these countries that are, you know, floating these ideas of doing new nuclear in Eastern Europe, have they thought it through? Are they confident that they can do much better than France, for example? And so I'm not sure that this is the most popular, popular choice or the most the smartest choice, so to speak, again, not wanting to judge anyone, but, but it's definitely a heroic undertaking for any country. We've talked about one area on the pod before this year, and that's on, on small modular reactors. Do you think that could be, um, that could be a, a solution? Sure. Around these very big, sorry, yeah, uh, big, massive infrastructure projects. Yes, we could look at it from many different angles, and that certainly would solve the problem of, of scale. But I, 
is it proven? Is it around yet? Is it costly? Is it scalable itself? You know, does it solve the problems? I don't, I'm not sure that we're at that stage yet. So it's more wind and solar, big developments, and then the aggregators who come in yes. who will, you know, with, with either batteries, demand side, and will then make sure that that gets traded and, and gets where it needs to be. Yes. It keeps yes. the light on as well. Correct. As exactly as you, as you stated, right? It's, it's wind and solar, great. But don't forget batteries, like you, like you mentioned. Don't forget electrification of the carpool, the ability to, to do grid, a vehicle to grid, improvements in grid, and so on and so mm. forth. Yes. How about much more so than combusting fuels? Sorry. Absolutely. What about hydrogen? Does that have a role to play here as well in the region? I mean, is, you know, we've had seen in some areas a decarbonization of, of the power sector, but hydrogen is a, is a way to decarbonize the industrial sectors. Yes. And let's not forget that transportation sector right if we're talking about uh, about decarbonization so yeah exactly. i mean mm. pollution of this type is is a huge piece that needs to be attacked from many different sides there is a lot of excitement in the community about hydrogen and it is showing some promise again i'm not one of these sort of early adopters so to speak right so i, I like to be a bit cautious i'm a bit of more of a turtle <laughs> if you if you will <laughs> but there's already plenty you know with with um even if you simply look at the evolution of how solar and wind have evolved, right? How much further down the road we are with these technologies and how much they've been able to provide. I mean, that's really, really encouraging. Paolo, thank you very much for talking to us today and, and outlining how the regions that are, are struggling to meet very ambitious climate targets could move forward, uh, in a sense, to, to clean, up, clean up their act, clean up the energy system. So, Paolo, thank you very much. You're very welcome. So, listeners, that's about all from the Monta Weekly Podcast this week. You can now follow the podcast on our own Twitter account, uh, aptly named the Monta Weekly Podcast. Please direct message any suggestions, questions, or let us know if you'd like to be a guest. You can also send us an email to podcast at montelnews.com. Lastly, keep up to date with all that's happening in the energy markets on Montel News. You can subscribe on Apple Podcasts and Spotify, and please leave a review if you can. Thank you. Goodbye.